Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am in New York for the Strata Conference, and I am here with James Dreis. James is a senior data scientist at Reuters. James, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, Sam. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. So, James, you've got a background in art history. (laughs) Uh, You've studied economics Uh uh, at graduate school. Uh, You currently work at Reuters doing data science. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I, it is sort of a weird background to have um, yeah, art, art history and, and English and sort of humanities, but that's that's what I studied in undergrad, and I sort of kicked around in those worlds for a while in New York City. And eventually, I started a nonprofit with a friend that was focused on international development, and that is what led me to grad school. Um, so I studied econometrics and statistics in London, and uh, that was sort of my first exposure to you know this. Uh, sort of world of data science, although uh, at the time it wasn't really talked about as much. Um, and it also first exposed me to, a little bit to programming. Um, we use something called Stata, uh, which is like a SaaS sort of you know statistical software, but you do you do do some coding. So that was a really good sort of skill acquisition period. And um, after school, uh, yeah, I, I learned R. Um, and there was this great job at the Met Museum in New York that opened up and they were hiring for predictive analyst. Um, and that was, uh, so given my art history background and also having studied what I studied, this is sort of a perfect combination of those, those two things. And um, yeah, that was great. I mean, it, it's, you know, you work at the museum, um, sort of ruined me for any future office. Uh, it started awesome. Yeah, it was really terrific. Uh, you know, I like whatever, like, I don't really care, like, you know, if you have any like foosball tables you have or how big your like what Croy <laughs> Tower is because, you know, I'm like, I can go like look at like five Vermeers at lunch, my, you know, my lunch break. So that was amazing. Um, and was your uh, was your focus there on uh, kind of operational uh, analysis or marketing analysis, or was it art related? It was. Uh, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, more, more more focused on administration and um, mm-hmm. specifically fundraising. So okay. trying to match uh, donors with uh, the museum, uh, people who really love the museum and have the capacity to give. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, interesting because the data there is really, really rich. Um, you know, I work in web analytics now. Um, but, uh, you know, there it's, you have postal addresses and, you know, these people really love the museum too. So it's not, um, they're happy to work with you. So that was great. Um, but yeah, a few years ago I moved to Reuters and that's where I am now. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we've done a lot of stuff. We had a big redesign on the website last year. Um, and built out the data science platform. And there's been a lot of stuff in NLP, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, here, I'm here giving a talk tomorrow. Um, and that's that's what I'm focusing on. Fantastic. So, yeah. And for those who don't know Reuters, uh, what does Reuters do? Or what is your, the part of Reuters that you work with do? Yeah, I, so Reuters is a news organization. It's, it's uh, international. Um, there's a lot of, we do a lot of syndicated news. So we have reporters all over the world um, stationed in you know many many different countries. Uh, so wherever there's breaking news, a reporter will be there and filing stories. And they go to different outlets, but we also obviously publish ourselves. So, mm-hmm. and it's you know we've been around for uh, well over 150 years, I think. Awesome, so, awesome. Yeah. And so the talk that you're giving uh, tomorrow is called "Document Vectors in the Wild: uh, Building a Content Recommendation System." Tell us a little bit about the motivation for this project. Sure. So uh, last year, um, we decided to redesign the website 
uh, and to move to um, something called an infinite scroll model. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of online publishers have moved to this model. Um, basically, it's one where you click on an article and then you read it and then you have a string of articles that come after it. Um, so it's a really, it's a big misnomer because it's, you know, it's, of course it's not infinite. In fact, we're just, we wanted to just give five to 10 articles uh, for the user. And um, yeah, so my job is really to figure out what uh, articles to give to them. And uh, specifically, so we we don't have registration on the website, meaning we're really, we're not doing too much personalization, about 75% of our users have two or fewer articles that they read. So it's really a content to content recommendation system. Okay. Um, so we're, we, and we did some tests previously and found out that if a user is on a page, uh, you know, if it's a business page or a tech page, they're going to probably want more of that content, which it makes sense. So mm-hmm. we started out um, thinking, uh, okay, well, we want to uh, find similar content on the site programmatically. And um, the other challenges were, well, uh, you know, news is breaking and happens quickly and editors can always provide tags, metadata to the articles. So essentially we need to do categorization just purely based on the text of the article mm-hmm. and maybe some tags as well. Uh, so the challenge is really um, how do you get at specific subtopics within these larger topics that we have like tech and business and how do, how do we find um, articles about discrimination in tech, um, which is not something that would necessarily be tagged by an editor. Okay. Yeah. And so, presumably based on the talk title, you did this using document yes. vectors. vectors. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about word vectors. What's a document vector? Uh, it's very similar to a word vector. Um, it's sort of like a sidecar to a word vector. Uh, in fact, the document vector is treated as another word. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, this is like the problem in NLP is that if you um, uh, just tokenize text and you're just looking at the treating the words as these atomic objects, you're losing so much information. Um, you know, if, if uh, you build a vector that has the word president in it and another one that has the word Trump, you know, those two vectors can't, they don't know that Trump is president, which is, you know, good for them. But mm-hmm. um, that's, we need to know that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, word embeddings, which uh, encode semantic meaning, get at this. But the challenges for us were that we have the length of our articles are highly variable. We have really short articles, really long articles. Um, so doing something like just taking the first hundred words of an article and you know taking the embeddings for those words wasn't really going to cut it. Um, and you know having done some research into document vectors, I also knew that uh, performance in these sorts of tasks was higher than just using you know uh, word, in, word embeddings that were cut off at a certain length or average word, word embeddings or that sort of thing. So this is something we wanted to explore. Is that pretty typical for using word embeddings to cut them off at a certain length? Why is there a requirement to do that? I think, um, well, if you wanted to compare two articles mm-hmm. that were different lengths, you had to, you know, they had to have similar sizes, okay. the same sizes. So um, I'm not sure how wide that is in the industry, uh, but document vectors allow you to uh, to obtain vectors that are the same size, um, where the articles would be different lengths. And so how do you go about creating these document vectors? Uh, so word vectors, uh, the way I'm, you know, I'm sure your audience knows how they are uh, created, but um, it's, you know, they're very similar. Document vectors very, happen in a very similar way. So essentially, you know, word vectors are getting at um, uh, the semantic meaning of uh, words. I usually call them, uh, I treat them as, you know, their addresses basically in this multidimensional space. So you know that the word dog and the word cat are 
uh, close together because the model on which they were trained uh, determined that the, their co-occurrence happens frequently. So in the, the model specifically, um, it's calculating the probability of co-occurrence, and that's the output layer. Um, and the middle layer is the embedding layer, and that layer is being maximized. Uh, so it's sort of set up as this fake prediction task where you're predicting words from context or the opposite. And as a result, you have these, these weights that are rich with all that semantic information. Uh, now, uh, excuse me, document inductors are very similar. You're doing, the training is, is virtually the same, mm -hmm. uh, but you're just adding an, an additional vector uh, at the input layer uh, that is representative of the document. Uh, so uh, you train in a similar way. You have a context window. You sort of scan across the, the article, the document, um, you know, doing the predictions. Um, and at the end, after you've gone through your entire corpus, you have this additional vector that is sort of picked up all the semantic information that was not picked up by the word vectors. And you can make these comparisons between articles, between documents, because uh, all the documents have shared context and words. Mm -hmm. So if they have shared context, then uh, the article should be similar. Mm -hmm. So you're doing, you're able to do kind of similar vector operations on these documents. You know, there's the classic uh, word embedding or word vector examples like you know, man, king, woman, queen kind of thing. You're able to do those same similar kinds of things with documents. Yeah, uh, you're able to compare two articles where they, they don't share any two any uh, pieces of text that may not share any words at all and maybe different lengths, and mm -hmm. you can get it. You can know that they um, they have uh, similar meaning, and that's how we got at these subtopics. There are some sort of peculiarities with them, especially with inference. So, when you want to make make a prediction for a new document. Uh, that you haven't seen before, you're essentially running a new training step, an additional training step, or maybe many 10 to 20 training steps, depending on how many epochs you had when you're training the original um, model. You're also holding the, the word vectors and the output weights uh, constant. So you hold this constant, you do an additional training step, and this new document vector that was initialized randomly uh, comes to, um, you know, it, it, it essentially picks up all the information that... Uh, is present in the, in the context and, and the output layer. Can you yeah. elaborate on that? So sure. this is when you're during at inference time, you're also, you're, there's a training step? Yeah, there is. Um, so uh, essentially, so that new vector is, is initialized randomly. Um, the other weights are held constant. And um, it's, it's sort of strange. Um, essentially, you're going to have a new, that new document vector that you're obtaining is going to be a little different each time if you, if you do new inferences, um, which is a little strange. But there are ways of getting at uh, to sort of do um, like sanity checks to know that, okay, this new document vector that I just inferred uh, should be similar to, you know, to itself, essentially. So, you know, one sort of sanity check is, you know, you have, you have your model, you've trained it make inferences on all the, all the training documents that you trained on, and then ensure that those new inferred document vectors are, the, their nearest neighbors are themselves. So mm -hmm. if that's the case, then your model should be um, trained correctly. And so how did you get from the, uh, these document vectors to the categories? Uh, to the sort of the larger topic categories? Or to the, to the, or the subcategories? So, or both. Yeah. <laughs> so they're not um, they're not really we don't have labels for the subcategories. That just okay. sort of happens 
it's it's a, oh, it's a so result of having of, the model. Yeah, you're clustering in this document space and then manually associating a label with individual clusters. Yeah, so we 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 put the unsupervised learning model in production, which is mm-hmm. um, I think some unique and mostly you know often embeddings are used for um, downstream tasks as you know part of the feature of a model, but we're actually using this the clusters directly. Uh, we got at you know we tried to ensure that it was it was accurate, and I can I can get into that. But um, one thing that we did so we're only uh, make when we rank um, the article scrolls. We're ensuring we're just we're first just pulling all tech articles, for instance, mm-hmm. and then within tech we rank. Uh, okay, based on the very the article that the user requested, what are, what are the nearest articles that are you know within the last twenty four hours that are also tech? And you know, there's also like a popularity filter there as well. So, so the example you gave earlier, where you were interested in a subtopic discrimination in tech, for example. Uh, that subtopic is never explicitly identified. It's just based on, it's determined based on uh, this, the document space. Right, exactly. I mean, we can go back and look at the labels that were applied by editorial after the fact and get at that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, similarly to um, something like LDA, like it's not, you know, that's not, there's not an automatic assignment of label. Like this is discrimination right. tech. You have to sort of, if you're looking at trying to identify subtopics in LDA, you're, you're really just looking. You're looking at the words, you know, um, that were assigned for that topic. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. a similar sort of thing. Uh, you were mentioning uh, some of the testing that you were doing mm-hmm. uh, around this. Yeah, um, it was uh, interesting. So you know, measuring performance of unsupervised learning models is always a little tricky. There's always some eyeballing that goes uh, goes on. Um, you know, like something like doing the elbow method for. K-means like that's always been sort of hard for me. It's never actually like you never get like a true elbow like to, to determine the right number of clusters. You know there should be mm-hmm. like this break and in uh, in the graph of clusters versus um, uh, how uh, dispersed they are. But you know looking through the literature um, and also remembering other methods, uh, something like silhouette silhouette index, which is uh, unsupervised learning metric where you're essentially comparing the average distance of a, cl- uh, a point, a data point, and between it and its own cluster and its neighboring clusters. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to get at how close it is between its own cluster and its neighboring ones. And you're assigning accuracy based on that. Um, in one of the doc to papers, the authors used uh, something called triplet accuracy, mm-hmm. where they took Wikipedia articles and uh, found uh, articles that were in the same topic. And then they took a randomly drawn non-topic article. And if the distance between... Uh, the two similar topic articles was closer than the non-topic article, hmm. then that counted as an accuracy point for for the model. Okay. So we did something similar. Um, we knew that we wanted to uh, do subtopics. So uh, you know, we we for the document vector model, we'd take two articles in tech uh, and, that, and one that was not tech. And if it determined that those two same articles were were closer than the the one in business or you know, sports or something, mm-hmm. then that counted as a, as a point to the accuracy. And we ended up with, I think it was about 77% accuracy, which is very close to what the authors who de- uh, devised this triplet accuracy found as well. So you're basing this model on uh, accuracy at the category level, but ultimately you're trying to uh, make inferences at a subcategory level. Did that play into, did that play into it at all? Um, in terms of looking at accuracy, in terms of looking at accuracy or the model, you know, construction or performance. 
Yeah, we definitely did some some sort of uh, we couldn't have done too many, but yeah, we we looked at uh, you know just the performance generally, um, relying on the editors as well to sort of say like, well, this is a good you know this is a good match, um, this isn't. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the real test of any model is when you put it in production, see the mm-hmm. performance, and yeah. if it's performing well, you know, if if the topic assignment is is not good, then uh, you know it should not really it should perform less well than your control or your other test branch. So. Mm-hmm. That was the ultimate test for us. And so what was the metric for that test? What are you ultimately trying to drive? We So ultimately, we want to drive engagement on our site. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways of op- a lot of ways you can optimize, uh, you know, the way users interact, interact with their website. Uh, but engagement is the sort of catch-all thing that uh, if you try to get at that, then you're going to lift all the other ships of, you know, whatever, looking at ad- ads and engaging with the content itself. So... Mm-hmm. So that was ultimately what we were trying to get at, and that um, there are proxies for that. Uh, so specifically, how deep an art- uh, a user would get into the article scroll, and also how deep they're getting into the articles themselves. We we did three different test branches: um, one where we're having similar scrolls, and one where, have, where we have uh, we have what what I, were, I was calling dissimilar scrolls. Um, so I had this sort of pet theory that users would get sort of tired of reading the same content. Um, so if you're reading an article about like Trump's cabinet woes, maybe you want to move on to something else after you've read that article. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the intuition behind that. So we would, and essentially that's same topic articles, just sorted in reverse cosine order, which essentially what you're obtaining is um, there's a lot of randomness there. It's, it sort of doesn't seem, you're, you know, you can't immediately tell that uh, two articles are very dissimilar. Um, it's sort of a strange thing. They're just going to seem like, like that, they, they were randomly drawn. Okay. So that was one test branch, and then as a control, we had uh, top news articles. Um, and yeah, the end result was sort of you know what we expected, which is good, which is that similar articles really outperformed the scrolls, uh, outperformed both of these these other test branches. Mm-hmm. Um, and within topic categories as well, things like sports and uh, culture those performed especially well. Um, those are sort of on writers, they're a little harder to find on our site. So if users are going to those topics, uh, it's likely that, you know, they're going to be highly engaged. So that was the intuition behind that as well. So, mm. uh, and to what, uh, to what degree did the similar scroll model outperform the other models? Uh, it was a few fractions of percentage, but, it's, you know, when you're looking at statistically significant results, that's what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, we were lucky in that, uh, so essentially every article page was a randomized test. Um, so a user comes to the page and they're served one of the three test branches. And mm-hmm. that random, randomization happens at the article level. So we ran hundreds of tests. Um, and the, that was the real, you know, no matter the, the lift, I mean, that the was very important as well, of course, but... In terms of like winning pages, uh, the similar scrolls uh, blew the other two out of the water. So that was um, that was a very good. So what do you mean us. by that? Winning pages? Uh, that uh, the one test branch was um, significant over the other two in terms of these metrics that I mentioned. Okay. So that was counted as a winner. And then if you look at all the pages in aggregate, that was the result. A couple of random things I remember from flipping through your presentation. There was uh, a reference to Comfifi. I know. Well, I was I was trying to. I was like, I really want to use this this tweet uh, as an example of 
you know, because a lot of people, wedding buttons have been around for a while now. I wanted to sort of, I don't know, liven it up a bit. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, Kofifi, I don't know what would add or subtract, what vectors would add or subtract to, to equal that. I think it's just this, it's completely nonsense. So I don't, <laughs> um, I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, and I'm glad that you pronounce it the way I'm going to pronounce it because I'm not ent- entirely sure. Um, so. <laughs> I think I pronounce it differently every time it's I a say mystery. it, which is yeah. not very often. <laughs> well, that's NLP is hard for this reason. I mean, this is like, we're getting at this, like what, you know, pronunciation meaning like this is, uh, yeah. I mean, someone described um, uh, English to me the other day, and this is any language, but it's a connotative sort of system. And it's, that really gets at it for me, like in a pithy way, like, uh, it's all built around these connotations. Everything has higher, uh, mm. higher meaning, um, you know. And they're also the the meaning may depend on cultural associations, mm-hmm. um, yeah, all sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. what what kind of interesting or surprising, really, things that you have you did you learn along the way with this project? Probably the most surprising was that you know people were just sort of consume. They they come to a website that you know in terms of news at least mm-hmm. they really go after one subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that makes sense. I don't know. You've seen sort of the development of like the media ecosystem generally. And, you know, it's, it, they have like these one track minds and they keep delivering on, you know, certain subjects over a certain time period. Um, so that was, um, I don't know if it's surprising, but maybe like, I don't know, a bit disheartening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was hoping that, uh, you know, we, we want to get at, um, sort of variety and, um, you know, especially when we have like these long investigative pieces, that journalists have worked on for a while, um, you know, we want to sort of get at uh, when is the best time to serve them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is to, to, to do that, you really, that's that personalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do want to get more into personalization, but it is difficult given that, you know, we're entirely cookie based and we don't have registration. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it really, I think speaks to a lot of what we see with the whole, you know, filter bubble uh, kind of situation if you if you see such strong results by serving up more of the same mm-hmm. you know yeah, everyone is seeing the same kind of results and that's why we're all getting every spiral more of the same right mm-hmm. exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but what can you do i don't know <laughs> to talk to the editors about that one yeah so. yeah you mentioned inference stochasticity mm-hmm. at some point in your talk what, what was that reference yeah that was um so i was trying to get this uh previously it's really about um when you make an inference on a new document vector. So it's initialized randomly. Um, and uh, if you do the inference multiple times, it's going to be a bit random each time. Um, and that was a bit strange to me. Um, you can look at the variance of the, the vector, the document vector, but you know it's always going to be a little different. Um, we tried to get at this by just having a higher number of training iterations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I think, especially important because we were working with 100 length uh, vectors um, for a number of reasons. I mean, we, we looked at, I looked at longer vectors, um, but surprisingly they weren't, um, they didn't really perform too much better. So given that would, would have just taken up more memory, um, mm-hmm. we went with the shorter one and it was unusual. I mean, I was actually trying to, I was looking into why shorter vectors, you know, there's a limit to um, uh, to how long they can be and uh, why shorter vectors tend to perform better. Mm. And um, it's, no one really, has really gotten at that, and maybe yeah. something about uh, overtraining. I don't know, hmm. um, but it's surprising. That's a uh, hundred uh, dimensions is commonly used for word vectors, and I would think that for a document you'd want kind of a richer mm-hmm. space, and so you'd want a lot more, a lot higher dimension. 
Yeah, I, uh, I I agree, but that's it's not what we saw, so um, which was fine. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of the stochasticity, there is an, another source of randomness in uh, in the context window. So we use Gensim um, for the document vectors and mm-hmm. the way the authors implement. What is that? It's a uh, topic modeling library in Python. Okay. Yeah, which is uh, really really terrific. Um, it's very fast. And yeah, so it handles LDA and, and word vectors and uh, document vectors. But the way that they implemented it was um, so that when you're training, there, there's a context window that you can specify, but it doesn't always draw. Say if you, if you say, okay, well, five words should be the, the window. It doesn't always draw five words. It draws randomly um, based on how, um, so the near words, the word you're, the center of the window will be, high, there, there's a higher likelihood that they'll be drawn. And this is how the, the original word Tevec authors implemented their the model. Mm-hmm. So that's what they did. Uh, so that is also even if you weren't, you know, even if you could see the the document vector at inference, you would still have the source of randomness. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you can another tactic would be to average the vectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we did the sanity check um, where you're comparing the inferred vectors to the vectors at training. Mm-hmm. Um, and in every case, they were, you know, they, you came up the, as the result where, you know, the nearest neighbor was the, themselves. So that was, that was the check. And mm-hmm. we, um, figured we didn't have to do, do that. So, hmm. yeah, I still have some fuzziness around the inference thing in this, in this case, what is the, what's the input and what's the output of this inference step? Uh, so the input is, um, is, uh, all the vectors that were trained, um, previously, Mm-hmm. So um, it's really it's not too complicated because this is these are really pretty simple models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just keeping constant the words uh, that were trained. Um, so mm-hmm. you're you're only looking up the words that are in a particular document that you're trying to infer. So those you know those vectors already, uh, and you know the output, um, the probability of co-occurrence for word-to-word pairings with those two uh, weights established. Um, just through gradient descent, the the vector that can change, which is the document vector that was newly initialized, that will change, that will sort of converge to uh, the result that you found in training. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I was uh, why I was kind of weighing out on that. So basically, you you trained um, this uh, set of document vectors based on some number of articles. I think it was three hundred and fifty thousand or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've got some new article that was just someone some editor just hit publish or submit or whatever you've got this new document you're trying to figure out where it fits and you need to produce a document vector for it and Mm -hmm. that's the inference step yeah exactly yeah Yeah. um but it's it's quite uh another worry was because we're doing this in production another worry was um you know just the speed at which you can infer um but it was it's quite fast it was less than 10 uh, milliseconds and we do this asynchronously so um uh, there isn't, you know, if you're going to see a page, uh, the inference has already been done. So we're just pulling that from a database essentially. And, uh, we also are this, we can also, we're caching, uh, frequently and we can cache at the feature level. So, uh, if a request is made for a particular article and we the, the request is, okay, we want a similar scroll. If it's not cached, we'll just pull it from the database and it's very fast. But after the fact, that response is, is that's string of articles is, is cached so we can, just serve it subsequently to, to users who um, come after that first one. Meaning for a given article, you cache the preferred similar scroll articles. Yes, exactly. And do you, do you cache kind of the exact order or do you cache a 
you know, some number of similar ones and then randomize or something like that? Uh, it's the exact response. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a, there's a filtering step where yeah, we're like, we're only pulling from our, um, so the, the tech stack is, um, and this is sort of the, one of the more interesting parts in this whole development is that we had to build out a data science platform. And uh, mm -hmm. it was great because it's, it's just a Python web app and it's serving a million unique users a day. Wow. Um, so to get actually, you know, to come upon the realization that you can, you know, build a Python web app and scale in that way, uh, that was great. And is it, uh, is it kind of bespoke Python or something like Django or something? Um... We use a, a web app framework called Pyramid, okay. which is, it's like Django, except um, there are significant differences. One of which is uh, you can use something called SQL Alchemy, which is, uh, um, uh, allows you to do database queries by writing Python. It's mm -hmm. a ORM. And uh, that's very powerful. So that was one of the, the main reasons for going with that. Um, other than that, we use uh, Amazon AWS. We have a MySQL database that uh, stores all of the articles. Mm -hmm. And then we use um, RDS or Redis cache for responses. Um, and that also stores. So when we do, we do personalize to some extent um, for like sponsored stories. And you know, we serve up sponsored stories based on where users in the world. So that's a user level feature. So we do do that. And there's Redis is caching those responses as well. Um, so we're able to, to scale with the users as well. Okay. So yeah. you've got this Python based web framework website. Um, and it sounds like you're saying kind of starting this uh, effort up, you didn't have a, a data science stack built up around this, this website around the project. So what were, um, what were some of the, the steps and thinking that went into building up that stack? It sort of was built out um, feature by feature. The original feature uh, was making recommendations for videos. Cause, um, so I started with at Reuters with uh, one of their apps called Reuters TV. Okay. And we put the Reuters TV um, player on the website and we wanted to, so there's algorithms that go into that. There's um, a program, something called a program assembly algorithm that takes all the available videos that we can show and builds the best program based on the time that the user selects. And there's other sort of recommendations that go into that. So we needed to have a system to, um, to build that for, for the website and also for Reuters TV. Meaning a user goes to the website and to, and to some TV section and they say how long they intend to watch. Yeah, that's, that's um, one of the uh, key features of the app. Okay. Um, and that was one of the, that was a really interesting data science problem as well, because it's, it's, it's actually, um, so, uh, so to determine, you know, based on these 25 stories that have three lengths each of their variants, how do you, you know, if the user wants to watch a program that's 10 minutes long, how do you take all of that content and get as close to 10 minutes as possible without right. going over? And how do you also make sure that you're filling the editorial requests of, well, we want to show X number of world stories and this many culture stories and that sort of uh, thing. Kind of like so, a weighted bin packing kind of thing. Mm -hmm, yeah, it's called a knapsack problem. Yeah. Um, and it sort of comes up in, you know, like these coding interviews you're, right. where you think, like, I'm never going to have to use this. Right. <laughs> uh, but it was, uh, I used it and it was, um, and there were some sort of new, uh, what I thought were new things that went into it. Like there's a multiple choice component and where you're choosing um, because each main story has three different variants. So, um, so that was very interesting, uh, but yeah, the 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 um, framework uh, was really built out, yeah, feature by feature. So there's um, there's that, there's the scroll model, 
Meaning, so you you, you started with this video. Um, we we talking features at that level. Uh, that you know, there's a the the, the framework has a, this video uh, optimization feature, the scroll optimization feature, or are you talking about lower level features that support the building of these different uh, higher level features? I guess. I guess I guess both. I mean, it's all contained yeah. there. So the, even the model models are loaded into memory, which we're trying to actually get away from that and build out another framework uh, where requests are just made to a machine learning app mm-hmm. um, for, you know, give us a scroll for this article. And um, the, the rest of the business logic that was built out during this building, the data science framework is still, is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's that, there's uh, other, I'm trying to think of other data science things that live on this, this web app. Uh, we do uh, uh, something called a trending people module. So, mm-hmm. Uh, where we're uh, doing name entity recognition on articles, and we're also looking at how articles are trending, and uh, we we have a little module on one of the the sites on the website where uh, we show people who are trending, and that's just based on the articles that they've been in and the mm-hmm. fact that we've determined okay this person is being referenced, and also they're the subject of this lead of the article. So okay. yeah, and are you? Um... Are you doing that using that same document toolkit that you mentioned, or how are you doing the NER stuff? Well, we have um, uh, some in-house and some um, using Spacey, which is a, a sort of a general, really great um, NLP library. Mm-hmm. Um, but Thomson Reuters, which is the larger company of Reuters, they have uh, they built out a really terrific um, NAN entity um, system. Uh, so for any given article, they will tell you uh, who's in it, um, and that's that's done in you know in the typical ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from that, um, there's also um, something that I built out was uh, determining. You know, we we don't want to just pull out all the people in an article and show them like, okay, all these people are trending. Mm-hmm. Um, the task is really okay. Well, we know these people are in the article, but who is who are the main subjects of it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, that that's a task of dependency parsing and saying, okay, well this. If you look at the lead of the article, this person is performing the action uh, on this person. So let's take the subject and say that this person's trending, mm-hmm. and um, that that's sort of how we how we get at that. And so you've got you've got these different uh, components that you use. You mentioned Spacey, and I forget the name of the other uh, Gremlin. Uh, J- uh, Jensen. Gen- Jensen. Yeah. Jensen. Maybe okay. Gensen. I'm not entirely Gensen sure. Gensen or, or Jensen again. Okay. Of FFA. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> You, you described this kind of data science platform um, trying to, to get at kind of what really characterizes this platform. Is it this high, these higher level features that you're offering through the site or are there lower level you know, components that you've pulled together that accelerate the ability to make the N plus one th- feature? Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the features that characterize the web app. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, just in think, thinking in terms of... Um, uh, the end users, that's sort of what they, they care about. Uh, and and but, they, who are they? Are they developers on the web app? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're, um, so I, I built the web app, but they're okay. uh, front end, mostly developers. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if there's um, the sort of the, uh, the tech that goes into the modeling, um, the lower level stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think down the line that that could be something that, you know, we want to try to build out and, Reuters is a, you know, we have a lot of um, uh, resources and uh, even though the team is very small, uh, that's something that I think that would be good to, you know, 
if you wanted to think about contributing to the community, data science community, that would be, that'd be really terrific. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How big is the data science team there? Uh, it's, it's not, it's not big. It's, uh, less than 10 people. Um, Mm -hmm. so we're, you know, trying to grow in uh, different ways, but yeah. And then the developer team is also not big, but it's, it's good to, you know, be small and, Mm -hmm. uh, and agile in that way. Cool. Anything else that we, that you plan to cover in the presentation that we haven't already talked about? Uh, I think we got to most of it. I, um, at the end, I, I do talk about um, just sort of the future of embeddings. And I think that there, there's some question now because they have been uh, outperformed in some ways by different types of embeddings. There, uh, there, uh, it's a sort of a suite of models. Um, the, one of the better known ones is something called ELMO, which is an acronym. Um, called what? Uh, ELMO, E-L-M-O. Okay. It's a language model uh, type, type of embeddings. And essentially... Um, there it's getting at uh, essentially just deeper context. So, you know, with normal word vectors, uh, you capture the context in, uh, of that word in a data set, mm-hmm. but this actually gets at multiple contexts. So the, something called uh, polysemy, which is the multiple meanings of uh, individual words. Uh, so it's, 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 it's more advanced model. It's more complex. Um, and uh, there are also some sort of structural things about it that allow it to be used in downstream tasks, a variety of downstream tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems that it's, it's really outperforming um, in these tasks, uh, word embeddings, just sort of vanilla word embeddings. And I think a lot of the um, uh, inspiration, this is coming, just lifting this from um, this guy, Sebastian Reuter is an academic and he developed Elmo and um, he had a blog post talking about when is NLP going to have uh, its image net moment Mm-hmm. Um, referring to, I remember that post. Yeah, it's really um, thought provoking, and uh, yeah, getting at uh, you know when when are we when is NLP really going to break out? And in terms of um, you know a single type of model or a single data set, that's why he was talking about ImageNet, and you know for computer vision, it was really both. Like the acceleration mm-hmm. that happened so swiftly there was because of a data set, right? And then uh, and also the models, that but led to CNNs. Yeah, yeah, and then. But, you know, moving that, doing transfer learning, moving those models and the weights that were trained on this very rich data set to other tasks, that was sort of the image net moment. Um, and with these embeddings, you know, they're trying to get it to the universal embeddings that can be used uh, uh, in a variety of different tasks downstream. And um, they're similar to, they're, you know, they're looking at context, they're, they're sequence models. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're predicting words based on context, but it's in a much deeper way and it's um, bidirectional LSTMs. So yeah, given that they, you know, it seems like they've the metrics are much higher for these. Um, there's a lot of question about like you know what's going to happen with with vanilla word embeddings and document vectors. So, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, Sebastian and I are uh, overdue to do an interview. We're supposed oh, to be cool. getting back in touch now. I think fantastic. Uh, well, he'll tell you much more so than I know. About to, them. Yeah, uh, anyone <laughs> listening to this that was intrigued by the comment, um, we should be diving into that. Soon. Cool. I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. It was great to have you on the show. I appreciate you stopping by and uh, looking forward to your talk. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on James or any of the topics covered in this show, visit twimlai.com slash talk slash 183. For more information on the Strata Data podcast series, visit twimlai.com slash stratany2018. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.